Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. The issue of Russia and Ukraine. My guest writes, Mr. Putin's speech. You ever watch any of that? I mean, I watch, I don't speak Russian, but I watch this guy. And... He doesn't look well. He really, I mean, he doesn't look well. And he sounds worse. Uh, Putin's speech, uh, according to my guest, shows why it's difficult to negotiate with him. His rationality is so different to ours. It was clearly a discourse of might is right. So my guest also writes, the problem now is the tanks may not stop in Ukraine. So what is likely to play, take place? Dr. Christian Luprecht joins us, Royal Military College and Queen's University, the NATO College in Rome. He's an international intelligence and security expert, frequently called to testify at parliamentary hearings. And his most recent book is Intelligence as Democratic Statecraft, published by Oxford Press. Christian, thank you very much for the time. Your book takes on constantly added relevance. We need intelligence, and it is statecraft, isn't it? Uh, yes, I mean, this is the first line of defense. You need to know what your adversaries and uh, non-state uh, actors are up to in terms of undermining your interests, undermining our security, our prosperity, our democracy. And of course, Russia has been at the forefront of that since 2007, since uh, President Putin decided uh, that he was going to go all in uh, on undermining uh, the West at every opportunity. And so really the actions that we see him taking uh, is simply a continuity of his behavior for the past 15 years. Did it surprise you that for weeks there was this, will he, won't we, attitude, and Putin just tighten the string and loosen the string by saying, yeah, I'm moving troops over here, but it's just exercises. We don't plan on invading Ukraine. And it just seemed to me, and I don't know, I wasn't around in 1939, but it just, I wondered if there were some parallels where people were just hoping for peace in our time, hoping that Putin would not turn out to be the 2022 version of 1939. Uh, I think there's two dimensions to that. So as I always like to say, my grandfather repeatedly had a stern warning for me, which is never trust the Russians. Um, and he had himself rather unfortunate experiences, firsthand experiences in that regard. And I think that sort of broadly appears to prevail. But I think I would sort of nuance that as saying that the Russians themselves, as other peoples, are, are, are good people. It is the Russian regime the regimes that uh, Russia seems to generate that are profoundly self-interested and have continually governed uh, this um, highly interesting and, and cultured country um, in ways that have not been in the interests of the vast majority uh, of, uh, of Russians. And so I think this is what we see on display here. The immediate challenge, of course, in this is if you can't trust a leader of a country or the regime that's behind him, and it's very difficult to negotiate. And I think this is the mistake, really, that much of the West here made, that since 2015, um, uh, countries such as Germany, first and foremost, have banked on diplomacy, that there are diplomatic ways to resolve differences with Putin. And the discourse that you mentioned, this very angry discourse of Monday night, showed that these differences, there, there is no common denominator that I could identify. 
the way he interprets the world, he reads the world, his extremely conspiratorial way of understanding everything that outsiders do as directed against him and against Russia makes it very difficult to find uh, any sort of common denominator, let alone then uh, building the trust that would be required to translate an agreement into actionable outcomes. And Putin likes to blame the West for um, Ukraine not having pressured Ukraine to implement the Minsk agreement. But of course, why would he implement an agreement with an opponent that has shown himself of not adhering to basic premises of international law or, for instance, most recently, him sending peacekeepers in quotation marks into Nagorno-Karabakh after the Armenia-Azerbaijan war, which he did completely uh, in complete violation of Russia's obligations in terms of coordinating with the OSC, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. So in that regard, you know, I, I can understand why if there's no trust, you can't negotiate, and certainly you wouldn't be able to implement anything that you negotiate. Uh, so I think it put Ukraine in an extremely difficult and challenging uh, position. Um, and I think the Canadians and others who think that we should just we should just resolve this through diplomacy and why do we need to have war and so forth uh, are simply naive in the sense that there are simply bad people out there uh, who will simply act purely in a self-interested fashion and who will stop at nothing to try to uh, advance their self-interest over the collective interests of their own people, let alone over that of the rest of the world. Yeah, well, people know I love dogs. Had a dog just about my entire life. But I also believe in this. If a big dog is growling at you, say nice doggy, but carry a big stick. Um, so you wrote in an op-ed in the National Post, Christian, that, and you accused the Canadian government of enabling Russia. Speak to that, please. So I think there's two particular challenges that I identify in that op-ed. Um, one is the consistent challenge that Canada has around money laundering. Uh, that as the Cowan Commission of Inquiry into Money Laundering in British Columbia is revealing as part of its uh, hearings and confirming, um, Canada is a safe haven for dirty money from across the world. Um, and it is one of the elements that is, for instance, driving the excessive increase in um, housing prices and residential costs in this country, because that's one way that bad actors from around the world park their money uh, in Canada. And if there's one thing that the Cowan Commission has definitely unearthed is that Canada is world-class, world-class in the way that its financial laws and its privacy laws protect criminals and protect the ultra-rich to the detriment of ordinary Canadians. Um, and Canada has a moral obligation, but it also has, in light of what's happening with Russia, a strategic obligation to be much more proactive. That is to say that, um, as the New York Times, for instance, reported again today, Vladimir Putin alone believes to have a fortune of about 100 billion that he's amassed. His belief that uh, the Russian kleptocracy is hiding about a trillion dollars outside of the country. And about 200 billion is money that Putin has direct access to and that he uses to fund movements that are profoundly undemocratic, for instance, and that look to undermine, achieve his objective of undermining our security, our prosperity, and our democracy. So I think politicians like to ignore this because they think it is not causing direct harm. But everything from the fentanyl crisis in this country to the way bad actors are using dirty money uh, to undermine our democracy and that of our allies and partners 
requires the government of Canada to step up and to meet its obligations um, under FADAF, um, uh, under the Financial Action Task Force, uh, to which it, it has signed up, um, and to make sure that we don't just do this by having uh, uh, pretty laws on the books, but that we also, for instance, have investigative capacity, which also the RCMP has shown itself um, uh, rather inept at the ability to prosecute uh, complex financial crime cases. If you need any evidence of that, no one in Canada has ever gone to jail for transnational money laundering, despite the fact that it is prolific in this country. Christian, before we go on, I just want to play something here. And it's something that millions of people have uh, seen and heard over the last couple of days. And it's the exchange between a Russian warship and Ukrainian border guards. And the Russian warship, in case you haven't heard it, the Russian warship tells the Ukrainian border guards, surrender, give up, because if you don't, we're going to shell you. And the Russian border guards, the version you've heard is just the, probably the Russian border guards, or the Ukrainian border guards in Russian telling the, the Russian ship, Russian warship, go and, um, you know, you know, the rest of it. So, but there's more to that because they were discussing with each other. I just want to play you that. First voices you'll hear, it's in Russian. You'll hear the Russian warship communicating with the border guards, and then you'll hear the reply from the border guards just before they died after they defied the warship. Play it. And that is what the Russian warship heard back, and then they opened fire. Dr. Luprecht. Christian, that, that just makes your blood run cold, and, and, I've, and, and I have such admiration for those, those border guards because they knew exactly what was going to happen to them. Uh, it's a war crime, uh, pure and simple. Um, uh, given that there was no immediate exchange of fire or threat from, uh, from the Ukrainians, uh, it appears. So that warrants an investigation. Um, and I think there'll be a lot of war crimes here uh, that will emerge because uh, under President Putin, um, uh, crimes against humanity have become a tactic uh, that he has used uh, in Russia, uh, especially in the occupied regions, uh, including Donbass and Duhansk, but also throughout Africa, where, for instance, the Wagner Group's human rights uh, violations and war crimes are amply documented by the European Union. And it is one other, one more reason why Putin has to be stopped because he consistently demonstrates that he, he has no regard for human life and that he effectively has a henchman that he has either ordered uh, or employed to carry out uh, acts that are incomplete and gross violations of the most basic elements of human dignity. And that's one more reason why this man must be stopped at any and all costs. Yeah, there have been videos that have been absolutely hor horrifying. The armored uh, military vehicle chasing and then just engulfing this small personal vehicle, little car. And we heard stories about um, kindergartens, schools being shelled. It's just it's horrific. But I cut you off before the break. I apologize. I had to take the break. Please continue with the point you were going to make. Oh, so just quickly. So the, I think the other criticism that I have is that, of course, by how does Russia fill its war chest? Primarily through the export 
of, uh, of natural resources, in particular gas and oil. And in particular gas to European allies, such as Germany and several other European countries, uh, that then, of course, uh, pay Russia for that gas and pay Russia handsomely, given the prices that it now charges. Now, uh, these Europe- so if we want to avoid Russia being able to finance these human rights abuses, finance these wars, finance these atrocities across the world, then we need to be able to provide our European allies with other sources to procure their natural gas. Canada has ample natural gas, but it turns out most of that gas is not near our coastline. That requires us to build pipelines. But we know that there is lots of opposition in this country to building pipelines. So Canadians who oppose pipelines, it's a free country. Everybody can have their views. But we need to understand that from a government strategic perspective, it is, in my view, terrible strategy because we need to provide an alternative to our European allies in particular. And Canadians also who oppose pipelines need to understand that by opposing those pipelines, um, that effectively aids and abets the uh, Putin's behavior because this is what continues to finance his human rights and war machine uh, that is steamrolling Ukraine. So I think in this country, we might want to have a more honest conversation about what the implications are of opposing pipelines. It's ultimately a political decision whether we build them or not, uh, but that there are strategic and human rights consequences to the policy that we have been pursuing in this country. We import somewhere in the neighborhood of 750,000 barrels of foreign oil every day. And uh, according to some statistics I read earlier today, we parted with $477 billion between 1988 and 2019, paying for foreign oil from, among other countries, Russia. So, as you said, we're, we're enabling. How do you how do you see the situation coming to an end? When and how? Yeah, I mean, it's one of sort of the smug Canadian attitudes, right? We think we are so moral and we're so ethical, and we don't realize that if you live uh, in much of eastern Canada and Ontario, you are likely filling your gas tank with oil that came from a country uh, that is engaged in serious human rights abuses. Um, and, you know, I've always found it puzzling that we're happy to do that, yet at the same time, um, we're not willing to uh, uh, take our own oil uh, or oil from sources from sources that are more ethical and more moral. And again, I think this is where governments have failed in having an open and honest conversation with Canadians uh, about the implications of the policies, the energy policies uh, that we have pursued that, in my view, are causing uh, serious financial harm, as you point out, uh, in terms of our own uh, our own intake. We, of course, don't control the extremely dirty ways in the way, for instance, Russia generates natural gas versus the very clean ways uh, that we generate our natural gas. Um, and we're not willing to talk about the just strategic and human rights implications, whether it's oil or natural gas. We have just one minute left. And I, I'm you're very generous with your time, for us, and I really appreciate that. How do you see this crisis ending? Well, in the immediate term, the Ukrainian military will have to hold out and the Ukrainian government will need to hold out. And I think if they can hold out for about a week, then it could get interesting because we already see some of the legitimacy perhaps crumbling, um, not just among Russians, but also within the Russian Russian regime itself. Certainly what this will result in is a rethink in terms of the basic rationale for NATO, which has always been to contain Russia militarily, but also politically and economically. And I think, unfortunately, in Canada, we will need to now pay a higher premium than we have paid. As I've pointed out, we don't even have a fighter jet that can defeat Russian air defenses. How can the prime minister honestly talk about deterrence? 
when we don't have the capabilities, now we're not alone. The German chief of the defense staff made the same comments earlier this week. Uh, but uh, we're going to be living in a much more dangerous world. Uh, and the way that this is going to end is by us showing serious resolve that okay. we are prepared to do what it takes to defend democracy, to defend prosperity, to defend our security and those of our allies and partners, in particular in Europe, which is our second most important strategic alliance after that with the United States. No one will ever forget the Nova Scotia mass shooting. And the inquiry began uh, just days ago. And former Globe and Mail editor, Nova Scotia resident, and author of a new book, 22 Murders, to be published in April, writes in an op-ed this week, quote, Nova Scotia mass shooting inquiry more about covering up than finding answers. Paul Palango wrote that. He's the author of 22 Murders, Investigating the Massacres, Cover-Up, and Obstacles to Justice in Nova Scotia. And he joins us. Paul, thank you for the time. Your concern is the inquiry into Canada's deadliest mass shooting, April 18, 19, uh, 2020 in Nova Scotia, will result in what you call a comfortable truth, end quote, for all engaged. Explain, please. Well, Roy, it's good to be back. Um, from the outset, it became obvious to me that there was something terribly wrong happened with the, you know, the shooting. It's bad enough that the people were killed, but it was clear to me that the RCMP was doing or not doing what it should be. It was doing un something unusual was going on. Like, like uh, and based on my experience, having written three books on the RCMP, I started to look at this sort of notion of a cover-up right from the beginning. And I thought, uh, I recognized what it was. And I've said from, you know, I started covering the cover-up in real time, basically, over the last 18 months and picking off things along the way that indicate that this exists. And I've been pretty good at it. And now we have the inquiry starting up this week. And the key person, for example, the, the head of the inquiry, Michael McDonald, as uh, a former chief justice of Nova Scotia came out in, in response largely to me saying, this is a totally transparent uh, affair. We're going to get to the bottom of what happened. Yeah. And literally in the next breath, Michael Tutton from the Canadian press asked him, asked, uh, well, is Lisa Banfield, uh, Gabriel, the shooter Gabriel Wortman's common law wife, is she going to be testifying? Well, not likely. So right away you have a problem. Yeah, I want to ask you about I want to ask you about all these things, Paul. But the term that I find very interesting is comfortable truth. Well, the comfortable truth is that the issue here is the state of the RCMP. The government and the RCMP, both the federal and provincial governments, don't want the whole story to come out because I've been told from the beginning when people learn what really happened, they will not want the RCMP policing them as a contract police force. And that's how the RCMP works outside of Ontario and Quebec, right. that they're a contract police force hired by the province to do the jobs that the OPP and the Sûreté de Quebec do, for example, and some municipal police forces. So it's hired to do that, but it's not capable of doing that. It's the, the model is unsustainable. The government reports say that and independent reports say that, but there's this rearguard movement to pr protect the RCMP at all costs. And so the comfortable truth will be, uh, yeah, they made a few mistakes, but, you know, we can live on and soldier on and, and continue on with the, sort of the regime we have. 
when obviously so, change so, so, is required. Is, is it your sense? Important. Is it your sense that the conclusion to the inquiry was arrived at before it began? Absolutely. They, you know, Roy, at the beginning, uh, both the federal and provincial governments and the justice ministers at those levels wanted to have a review. Twenty-two people were murdered. On the second day, uh, the Sunday, April 19th, the RCMP did not even put out a public alert. Well, nine people were being murdered over about a five and a half hour period, including an RCMP constable, Heidi Stevenson. Yes. And they said, oh, well, we did the best we can and uh, let's move on from there. We, we don't want, uh, we, there's no big issue here. Just move along. It was a bad day. Uh, we were overwhelmed. So this is the sort of the attitude that's been going on from the beginning that we want to review, no witnesses, we'll just see if a few things were wrong and move on from there. And then the families marched again on a police station, the families of the victims marched on a police station and forced an inquiry. But ultimately, the inquiry has become a review disguised as an inquiry. Yeah, that's exactly what family. it's become. Now, the families yeah. are upset. In the last couple of days, even the premier of Nova Scotia has recognized this. Right. Now, you, you expressed concerns in the op-ed that I read about how the interest of the families of the deceased is being represented. And so has the law firm representing the families. Again, reading your op-ed, lawyers for the families of the victims say they're in the dark about much of what will take place during this transparent inquiry. Oh, absolutely. How the government has craftily done this is they said from the beginning, from the very outset, we are going to approach this in a trauma-informed way. We do not want to cause further trauma and triggering events for the family members. And, you know, we're going to protect them at all costs. But what they've done in practice is use this as a shield to hide facts, not really discuss what's going on, and not include the family. So the families to this day have no idea what's going on, although they've supposedly been brought into the fold. I mean, I just spent an, an hour and over an hour on the phone the other day with one of the family members saying, I have the medical uh, examiner reports about the gunshots that two of their loved ones received. He says, it doesn't make sense, but I've got no one can answer questions. The RCMP two years down the road has not disclosed anything to me. I don't even know where to go. I have no standing. I can't find out. So this is what's going on. They've used trauma and forward in, in this sort of uh, woke philosophy to actually hide and, and subvert the process. And you're seeing that now. The families recognize it. I said the premier of Nova Scotia came out the other day and, and criticized the commission on its first day of operation, saying that you're, you're, you're aggravating the families and traumatizing the families further. And you're also traumatizing the general public who has a, you know, a, a great stake in this. Yeah. And, and you know, Paul, at the very beginning, you know this better than I do. I just remember doing some interviews immediately afterwards, and it was a heartsick situation because we were all feeling heartsick over what took place. And then along came the information there was going to be an investigation. And then along came the information shortly thereafter, two or three breaths thereafter, that it was going to be behind closed doors. We weren't going to know what was going on in the investigation. And that right away, that said to me, oh, something wrong here, something seriously wrong here. Well, you're right. And, and I mean, the, the real proof of this, like people, you know, I get the RCMP Veterans Association members saying, oh, you're a conspiracy theorist. You're this or that. Now, I'm, just, I'm a journalist. I, I know how this works. I've seen cover ups in the past. 
And this one I'm going to cover in real time. And two things have happened, three things actually, that really cement this is that the Serious Incident Response Team, which is the police watchdog in Nova Scotia, issued two reports on two very different aspects of the rampage. One, the shoot up of the Oslo Belmont Fire Hall by two Mounties. And said, oh, well, they uh, they were just doing their job. They were a little nervous. They, they, they were shooting at the wrong people. No big deal. No harm, no foul. That's not what happened. I've conclusively shown with interviews and other videotape and things that something else entirely happened, that those policemen tried to act as snipers, didn't do what they said they did. So that report was wrong. The second report by the serious incident response team, Judge Felix Caccioni, was a former judge, I should say, on the shooting of Wortman himself, the shooter at the Irving Big Stop in Enfield, Nova Scotia. He said, this is what happened. I obtained videotape showing that that didn't happen. You so have the video why tape, are right? they covering up something Paul, that they you, said was just, you know. You uh, have, uh, Paul, you have videotape, yes? Yes. Yeah. And I'm so relying on the videotape. And you have the mainstream media has basically taken the position, oh, well, this is Frank Magazine, who I've been writing for. Um, you know, we can't. Uh, they won't even really report on the facts in that, that we brought to the fore. And this, the problem now that that's presented to the government and the mass casualty commission is we have a lot of stuff out there, videotapes, 911 calls that they suppress. Like we, we proved with the 911 calls that we uh, obtained and published that the RCMP was lying from the beginning. They said they didn't know who the shooter was till the next morning. We were able to show with the videotapes that they knew the first three callers told him it was Gabriel Wortman dressed as a policeman with a police car. I have to take a break here, Paul, but let me ask you this question just before we do quickly. Do you have any standing? Will you have any standing, any participation in this inquiry? No, and I wouldn't want any. My my job as a journalist and my job, my ideas are expressed in the book, which is coming out April 5th. I wrote the book specifically to put facts on the record. Paul, you um, how do you get along with the RCMP? Well, oddly enough, uh, I, some of the members I get along with fine. Uh, people, especially at the lower end, who are uh, um, feel like they've been victimized by the force. But I've had some really good sourcing in this from people right up to a former deputy commissioner who says that I'm right. And I, they've been supporting me all along in covering this story. But, I mean, you're dealing with a force that uh, has largely lost its way. And that's not just me saying that. I mean... There are, there are reports over the internal and other commission reports looked objectively at the force and say it's got a broken culture, it's unsustainable, uh, it's ineffective at the federal level. It, it's, just, it's just a myriad of problems. But the, the, the problem in Canada dealing with it, it's seen as a symbol of Canada and that any criticism of it is an attack on Canada. But really the force is just the way it's structured is out of date it's it, it's time has passed it's it you know having a contract police force the provinces outside of ontario and quebec doesn't really work those provinces should be paying for their own police forces should have their own provincial police forces or regional police forces that effectively do that job in the, Paul, in the if, you, if, you, if, you, if you don't have a vested if you don't have a vested interest or live in the area you're policing uh your your, your involvement's going to be lesser it's just that's just the way it is. But let me come back to something else here. Let's go back to the families for a second. 
Uh, you wrote in an opinion piece for the Halifax News that the families have been snookered. And then I, I see that former Chief Justice of Nova Scotia, Michael McDonald, who you mentioned earlier, who's the head of the inquiry, expressing concern about how the how much the families of victims have been permitted to know and engage on, said, and you, I think you said this is in response to the questions you've raised, confidence in our institutions around us has been shaken. I would never tolerate any attempt by any institution or any individual to tamper with our independence. Nice words. Uh, prove it. You know, Mr. Justice McDonald, when he was on the court, was also the he was the judge who uh, conducted the trial of former Premier uh, Gerald Regan, who had a series of serious sexual assault charges against him. And Mr. Jo Justice McDonald ruled out the cases brought by the nine most serious victims of these assaults and eventually ended up with an exoneration of Mr. Uh, Regan. Uh, and people in Nova Scotia remember that. So they don't see him as a guy with clean hands to start with. The other person on the commission you're that's you're very... You're challenging dubious. the decision he made in that case, yes, obviously. Well, no, but this is the structure of the commission. So okay. He's seen right. as a political person by people in Nova Scotia. So let me come then back the to the point that you make, though. The commission is Leanne, Leanne Fitch, who's a former police chief in Fredericton, where Gabriel Wharton was likely committing crimes at the time. And her father was a Mountie, and she was on the RCMP Management Advisory Board at the time of her appointment. Does that not sm smell a little fishy? She's married to a cop, also. Yeah, um, some people might some people might uh, consider investigating conflict of interest there. Let's, but let me come back to this, because this is really ultimately ex extremely important. A and you're right. I want to come back to the families of these victims, because ultimately they need to be represented properly, and they need to be addressed, and their care is, is primary. You, write the f you wrote this on the Halifax News. The families have been snookered. I have one minute. Well, they've been snookered because they've been, they were told, this is all for you. You're going to work with the RCMP and the prosecutors and the government, and we're going to get to the bottom of this. And at the end of the day, uh, you know, they're supposed to sign off on a lot of this and uh, go along with it. And they're snuckered because what is included in the so-called foundational documents is the entirety of what's happened. But if they agree with this, they have no voice. And that's what they're complaining about now because they recognize this is what's happened. That the, the government and the RCMP have cleverly used them as pawns to basically protect themselves from controversy. Okay, I do have 30 seconds left here. When you started this investigation, did you have any sense that you were going to uncover, discover what you have? No, absolutely not. I, I wanted to help other reporters because I could recognize what was going on. When I realized they were dropping the ball, I took it on in myself. I decided to write a book that would put the facts out in the midst of the inquiry. So my book, which is coming out April 5th, um, from Random House, uh, my book puts the facts uh, on the table, the facts that we know. Certainly not all the facts, because so much is being hidden. And that might be, the rest might be the subject of a second book. So I had a conversation with uh, Charlie Angus earlier in the week, NDP member of Parliament. I've known Charlie for many years. He represents Timmins James Bay. And uh, it probably would be fair to say that Charlie and I don't, dis don't agree on many political issues. He's center-left, I'm center-right. 
But over the years, we've learned how to communicate with one another, learned how to be friendly to each other, learned how to listen to each other, and learned how to just discuss. So then I look at our parliament, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. Question period. MPs uh, on opposition parties and the government jawing at each other. You have members of parliament and the opposition asking the prime minister or the government questions they don't even answer. They come back with... um, something that has nothing to do with the question that was asked. So Charlie sent me an email about the uh, situation in Parliament. And he wrote, There are people of goodwill in every political party, but the toxic nature of politics is making these common grounds harder to find because when we step up to find a common solution, we get denounced as sellouts, etc., to those promoting ideology. Mr. Angus, how are you? I'm good, my friend. I'm glad to be on your show. Well, I'm always glad to have you on the show. Yes. And, you know, I, I think when we first got to know each other, we were somewhat irritable toward each other, but we learned how to deal with that. And and I actually look forward to your calls now. Well, Roy, I think it is to some to, to me a fundamental of democracy it's a fragile thing democracy and i'm learning more and more how fragile it is we take it for granted but it is really based on the notion that people of differing views can can agree on the on a situation there is a situation so what do we do about it do we use this set of this toolbox or that toolbox we argue it out sometimes uh and then we judge the results but more and more, that's not how we apply politics anymore. We certainly, I, I, you see in Ottawa, I think, with parliamentarians, um, there's been a real dumbing down of debate. Uh, more and more, we live in the world of talking points. But what really then concerns me is that in the larger world, more and more people are, I think because of the Facebook worlds we're living in, people are not even sharing a common sense of reality anymore. They're, they've got their own news feeds, their own alternate media uh, sources. And so we're getting further and further away from even being able to talk about, well, what is the problem? If we don't can't even agree on the problem, how do we agree on solutions? Yeah, so let me ask you this. Member of Parliament for how many years now? 18 years. Okay. So has this paradigm changed? During those 18 years, 18 years ago, when you were the rookie sitting in Parliament, did you have a sense that there actually is going to be some cooperative reality, that people would work with one another? Maybe the question period was going to be chaotic because it's television and people get to watch a political party and they try to score points. But has it changed in the 18 years, Charlie? Is the kind of communications chaos we see during question period also present when MPs are not on camera inside Parliament? Well, Roy, that's a that's a really important question because it goes in waves. There's times when we actually, across party lines, can do really important work. Um, I, I think one of the high points of my career was working with Bob Zimmer, very hard right-wing uh, conservative chair, and Nathan Erskine-Smith, who's about as left-wing on the liberal scale as you can get. And we worked very closely, liberal, conservative, New Democrat, when we were doing the investigation into the disinformation that's coming out of Facebook. Um, and I, I think we're going to need to do a lot more about that question of disinformation. So it, it can work. I mean, there are members of parliament from all sides that 
we text each other, we talk, how do we get through this? I think what's adding the pressure though is certainly, and I just alluded to it, is is the 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 Facebook false worlds that we're we're falling into and more and more of our voters and our constituents are living in. That to me has been the big change. I could always go back uh, and talk to people and we might not agree, but we, we, we had common bases. That common ground is really starting, I think, is disintegrating around us. And we're seeing that, Roy, with the, you know, the bot accounts, the, the trolls, the, the, the kind of virulent language that people use towards each other uh, online. And, and it echoes, I think, in Parliament now. I see par certain parliamentarians playing with that. And, I, and I, to me, that's really dangerous ground we're playing with when we're living more and more in worlds of disinformation. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you this question. Uh, I'll, I'll preface it by saying that I've seen a change in the tone of emails that I receive from listeners. Most of the emails are very cordial and uh, interesting, and we I answer as many as I can. But there are numbers of emails where people are just angry from the first word out. They're just mad. And my email address <laughs> hit the hit the page, I think. And then they, I, I see emails saying, used to like you, but you've changed. Uh, used to like what you did. Can you go back to being who you were? Um, what's the relationship between Canadians and their members of Parliament? What kind of email and communications do you receive from the people of Canada? And I ask this because there's context here. You walked away from Twitter for a while because of that, because of communication. What's it like? Well, Roy, um, very much like what you're describing, um, you know, often my, my relations with people are pretty cordial. I, I'm very op – I'm an open book. My, my phone's still in – you know, people know where to phone me, uh, Facebook. But you see these waves of anger and rage where you can actually talk to people. Um, people have said to me, you know, you've changed. Uh, you're a sellout. You're now a tool of the either the capitalist state or the, the world economic form. I mean, conspiracy kind of talk, but also the level of threat. Um, I've had three death threats in the last two weeks. In all my years in Parliament, I never, ever thought I would need security at my house. I mean, everyone knows where I live. But again, this kind of language that it's now okay to to use that level of threat. And, and I'll give you an example, Roy. I was I was trying to deal with some constituents about issues on the convoy, and I posted an article about a journalist who had said that they were taking their uh, CTV, they were taking their, um, their uh, de decals off their cars because they didn't want to be a subject of attack while covering the story. And a number of people said to me, well, if they didn't lie, they wouldn't have to worry about being beaten up. Wow. When did yeah. that become part of the public... Yeah conversation that they don't you don't like the news so you can beat them up uh, you hear that language now which you never would have heard five years ago ten years ago 15 years ago would have been I think people would have been so appalled they would have they would have stopped conversations everywhere now it's people shrug I uh, tweeted earlier that Charlie Angus was going to be on with us and there's well Charlie you wouldn't be surprised at some of the things that have been tweeted but you know comments but I'll stick with the ones that make sense. Uh, thank you, Roy, for having a dialogue with someone with opposing views. Could you perhaps ask why the party line is so strong that MPs go against constituents or their own beliefs, necessitating a house cleaning of MPs? This causes instability. All right, so that's 
I'll go to the calls in a second. So that's the fundamental question from the caller, Charlie. But we're going through now a very important time and a very precarious time in the world, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We'd like to think that our members of parliament, that all the parties can work together pragmatically on a solution and involving Canada. So we need to have that. We've just come out. I'm not sure we're out of it. But we've come out of the Emergencies Act that was introduced by Mr. Trudeau. So let's go back to the fundamental question um, that this caller is asking. Could you please ask why the party line is so strong that MPs go against constituents or their own beliefs, necessitating a house cleaning of MPs? This causes instability. What do you say, Charlie? Well, I mean, part of the way the parliamentary system is set up is it's set up along party lines. Um, I think you need to have people who can speak up on different issues and there are MPs who do that uh, certainly parties don't like that they like discipline but we're also it's I see when someone stands up and, and maybe contradicts their leader it suddenly becomes a big gotcha moment as well and and the other parties jump on that so some MPs are, are less willing to do that but I mean I think there's been times like I, I would say one of those MPs Hello? Are you one of those MPs? It's hard, It's hard, isn't it? I mean, yeah. it's hard for an MP to jump all over the leader. I don't disagree. It's like working yeah. for a boss, right? You, you go into the boss's office and say, I think what you're doing is wrong. You're a jerk. It's well, not, I, not, it's I kind of work around it. I, I, don't, I don't like challenging a leader because I think it undermines, you know, what we're doing. But mm -hmm. if I take a position, it's because I believe it. Um, you know, sometimes, sometimes if it's an opinion, sometimes if it's not that important to me, uh, you know, I'll listen. We, we always listen to our critics whose job it is. We, you know, every party has critics who have responsibilities. Yeah. But I, I, I like to kind of chart out where I'm going on stuff and, and let people know. And, okay. you know, and then I hear where, where people are going back. But I'll say, Roy, about constituents, when I, one of the things I learned is that people say they don't like lying politicians, but people also want to hear what they want to hear. Um, sometimes when you tell something, someone what they don't want to hear, but you think it's the truth, sometimes that's what makes people say, well, you're a lying politician, I don't trust you anyways. Yeah, I'd rather yeah. tell you the truth uh, and okay. say, listen, guys, I'd love to do that, but I don't think it's right. Let um, me get a caller on the air, Charlie. I think one of the default position when you take a seat in the House of Commons as a, as a member of parliament is you, you just generally assume that 80% of the population thinks you're lying as soon as you start talking. So that's the, that's the image that you have to overcome just as you're beginning your career. John is in Kelowna, British Columbia. John, thank you for the call. Go ahead with your question or point, sir. Yeah, I just think, uh, I mean, with the last two years, people are scared. You know, people are upset, they're tired and everything. And uh, sometimes they look at the Internet or something to try and find answers because they feel like maybe CBC or someone just hasn't given them enough information. And sometimes uh, they get called conspiracy theorists, and I think that's the wrong thing to do because they're just a person trying to find out information. And it's so easy to be a liberal or, uh, you know, somebody else, and depending what you know, position you win, the other side is going to take the other position. I, I think people are just trying to find out information. They should not be called any conspiracy theorists, okay. and okay. and people should be asking questions. Everybody. Yeah. Thank you for the thank questions. you for the call, John. You're absolutely correct. People should be asking questions, and that's what question period is all about. Bernie is in Brentford, Ontario. Bernie, thanks for the call. Hello, Bernie. Bernie, Bernie, Bernie. Yes, hello. Yes, sir. Go ahead, Bernie. Yes, yeah, so I heard you mention Facebook, disinformation on social media, this sort of thing. 
I think some of the dysfunction in our parliament, um, and also in our society now, it has to be laid directly at the feet of our prime minister. His language and rhetoric has been appalling, even threatening at times. So I think the buck stops with the person at the top. So that's a very interesting point. So, so Charlie, you hear Bernie make his point, and he's pointing mm-hmm. at Mr. Trudeau. You're a senior member of the NDP. You're an 18-year member of Parliament. What's it like? How is it tricky? Is it um, difficult? Is it something that has to be carefully thought out? If you're a member of Parliament and you challenge the Prime Minister of the country directly, is or is it just you know, is it um, just any question, any time, uh, as soon as question period starts? How's it work? Well, Roy, I think um, both calls, I think, got to the heart of something. I mean, people are frightened. We are dealing with the biggest medical disaster in the last hundred years. None of us have any sense of way of even imagining this. And I would say in the very first months of COVID, I thought the prime minister did a great job. He came out every single day. He explained what was happening. Uh, Parliament went to this hybrid model where we actually were able to push a lot more questions to individual ministers, and we were supposed to be focused on is what are we? What's the response to the pandemic? Uh, and I thought there was a lot of social solidarity. I thought I saw that at the provincial levels as well. Um, so. I think when people were frightened in the first part of the pandemic, we didn't know what we were dealing with. I would give Mr. Trudeau pretty strong marks, as I gave a lot of the premiers. But as this thing dragged on and on and on, uh, I, th- I found that leadership was lacking. And it was lacking, certainly, at the provincial levels. And I think when Omicron hit, I mean, it hit us like a baseball oh, okay. bat. So, so, so and I don't think that's... Prime Minister Charlie. Just, we didn't hear I, I don't think that's what Bernie's getting at here. Oh, you may be. I, but I think Bernie's talking about when the prime minister becomes um, verbose, insulting yeah. toward Canadians. Is that what you're saying, Bernie? Absolutely. He was threatening even. He used terms like, "What are we? how long are we going to tolerate these people? Well, there was a time in history not that long ago that another man said things like that. And it's outrageous to me that he wasn't called out by his own party. Bernie, I thank you for the call, and people are going to say, you just hung up on Bernie because you didn't want to hear what he had to say. No, I have 45 seconds left. Mr. Angus, go with yours, please. Well, well, Roy, I think the Prime Minister did blow it. I think there's a lot of blame for what happened with this convoy, the lack of leadership, the lack of basic rules that would have had a protest be a protest. Um, I think his language got way over the top. Um, when a leader is supposed to lead and calm things down. So, yeah, and I think I think we all have to learn from this. We Do all have, a, have a responsibility, but we are in a tough time right now. We're still coming out of COVID, okay. and now we got a war with Russia. So yeah. I would like to think that we can go back into Parliament and put Canadians first. I still believe that, Roy. I'm, I'm a bit of an idealist. I'm a bit, I know I'm naive, and I, I, people are probably not believing me, but I think we've got an obligation here. Senator Leo Housakos, conservative senator, who joins us um, on this Saturday. Senator, do you remember a week like this? Uh, no, I haven't. It's uh, It's been unbelievable, the things we've seen here in Canada, and of course now the things we are seeing um, you know, around the world. It's very disturbing. Yeah, what's your assessment of Putin's invasion of Ukraine? Look, I think it highlights how Western democracies have um, neglected the the defense of democracy, international rule of law, human rights, 
Uh, it's been now a couple of decades, and I've been articulating this from my little corner in the Senate of Canada, that our allies around the world and Canada ourselves uh, have been putting forward, uh, putting ahead uh, petty financial considerations over uh, values that should be of the utter importance for democracies. And um, Germany has done it, the EU has done it, Canada has been guilty of it, the United States. And Western democracies have to take a look in the mirror and say to ourselves, are we going to stand up for those values that people 70 years ago died in Europe fighting for, which is freedom and democracy, and put those values and principles ahead of any other consideration? What's your assessment of Canada's response to Putin's assault on uh, Ukraine? Are we doing sufficient, uh, sufficiently well? And uh, what, how, how directly is the Senate involved? Well, Parliament, as you know, in these uh, issues are going to be there to, to speak on behalf of Canadians, both in the House of Commons and the Senate. Uh, both are institutions more than ever, I think, in light of a prime minister that has shown how irresponsible he can be and how poor judgment, how much poor judgment he has shown when it comes to dealing with tyrants like China and like Putin. Um, I think we have to, to be very vigilant, very careful. I don't think Canada has done enough. I don't think the West has done enough. I think immediately we should have uh, withdrawn our ambassador from Moscow. I think we should have expelled the Russian ambassador from Canada. I think Canada should be taking steps to and leading the way rather than sitting back, as I see from our Minister of Foreign Affairs and Prime Minister, waiting to be led. We should be pushing a drive to get Russia thrown out of the OSCE. We should be pushing a, a drive to... to cut all economic ties uh, and make it abundantly clear to Mr. Putin that we're no longer going to be buying his oil and gas and putting pressure on the European allies to stop buying his oil and gas and start also as Canadians taking on our responsibility in the world instead of killing our ethical energy sectors, uh, starting to, you know, we should be actually exploiting our, that capacity we have and selling our ethical oil to our friends and allies instead of having oligarchs out of Russia, who are, are doing what is brutally unacceptable to Ukraine, uh, having free reign in, in the oil and energy marketplace. Yeah, this is all material we're going to be covering today and tomorrow. What I'm interested in as well is how much cooperation is there in Canada's parliament among the political parties? Is there a sense that for now, given this international crisis, this existential threat that's being projected by Vladimir Putin, is there a sense that, look, we'll put aside our grievances and our objections to one another and our challenges and the just, just the uh, unhappiness that exists in this building and work together? Is there any of that? Well, there is. And, and the truth of the matter is we've seen during this existential crisis called COVID, both uh, the House of Commons and the Senate, all opposition parties have, have shown cooperation and have put our political differences aside. Uh, and stood by the government, even at times when we were very skeptical about certain actions. So when, when we see, you know, when we see the threat to our nation, to our democracies around the world, of course we're going to rally together. But we also have a, a responsibility to remind this government that uh, they've neglected us, and we have to uh, pick up our game. For example, uh, sovereign, you know, when it comes to the sovereignty of our of our Arctic, northern, uh, the Northwest Passage, uh, we know that Russia up there has been making claims, territorial claims, and uh, that Canada has to be prepared for. And we've allowed for our defense capabilities uh, to wither away. We have not taken measures and steps to send a signal to the Russians that Canada is a strong, sovereign, ready nation to defend, uh, defend any bullying from this international uh, identified bully. 
Okay, I'll be speaking with Admiral Norman about that in a few minutes' time. Let me just switch to another issue. It seems like so long ago, it's only been 72 hours, but it seems like so long ago that the Prime Minister stood up and he said that he was rescinding the Emergencies Act, that there was no longer an emergency. What's your response to all of this? Look, Canadians obviously uh, have shifted their attention to what's going on uh, in Ukraine and, and for legitimate reasons, but we should not forget what the Prime Minister tried to pull off last week. Uh, we had legitimate protesters in this country uh, come to our nation's capital to exercise their democratic right, and the Prime Minister of Canada, instead of talking to these citizens, trying to find, find out what their genuine frustrations are, he talked down to them. Uh, he was provocative, he was inflammatory, he stoked the flames of division in this country with rhetoric that's unacceptable. And I remind our, our listeners, uh, just a number of months ago, these truckers were heroes to Canadians. When most of us were locked in our homes because of COVID in our basement, these people were going coast to coast, working morning, noon and night, right. endless hours of the week to supply us the, the bare necessities that we need to survive. And they went from heroes to zeros just because they didn't agree with the position of the government. And to exercise a draconian measure like the Emergency Measures Act, the way the Prime Minister did, uh, is unacceptable. And there's no more evidence of it than just a few days ago, Wednesday, in the Senate of Canada, Trudeau-appointed senators were on their feet saying how necessary of an act this was, how there were enemies of the state lurking around every corner, and this was so justified. And while they were saying that in debate, the Prime Minister was running at a press conference to pull the plug on the Emergency Measures Act because he saw the polls were turning against him. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 